From WAMU in Washington, D.C. and PRI, Public Radio International, this is Breaking Ground, a documentary series dedicated to unearthing stories you don't hear elsewhere. I'm Kavita Kadirza. Every year, I profile academically exceptional teenagers from the nation's capital as they get ready to go to college. Like the majority of children in D.C.'s public schools, they are poor. Many have faced extreme challenges at a young age. So sharing these teenagers' achievements is one of the best parts of my job as an education reporter. Of all these students, one stood out. My name is Christopher Feaster. I still remember being struck by his perfect manners when I met him in 2012. He was a high school senior then, and he stood up, shook hands, and said, pleased to meet you. Definitely not what I was expecting from a teenager. But there was so much going on under the surface. He and his mother had been evicted from several apartments, and when I met Christopher, they were living in a homeless shelter. All his belongings fit into two plastic boxes. I was always prepared for in case my mom and I got evicted. For the most part, things stayed in containers. So all I had to do was stow some trophies here, put some papers here, done. My room is packed up, perfectly ready to go. Christopher and his mother couldn't afford to do laundry more than once a month. I would have to, we wear socks. They were white socks, but they were so dirty that they were brown and Sometimes they were starting to go black. There were times I had to rewear underwear because I didn't have clean underwear. Sometimes it got to be too much. If I felt like I was tearing up, I go to the bathroom, I look at myself in the flesh, I'd be like, okay, Chris, calm down, just breathe. Just breathe. There was only one time where I slipped up and I actually cried in class. Tears were just falling down my face. To me, Christopher was the poster child for grit and determination. I was so happy when he won enough scholarships to cover the cost of attending college. And I thought that was the end of the story. Until I bumped into Christopher's former principal a few months ago and asked about him. Didn't you hear, she said. He dropped out. As a nation, we've concentrated on getting low-income students like Christopher Feaster into college. What we haven't focused on is whether those students complete college. Christopher's story is far more common than I had thought. By some estimates, just one out of every four low-income students will get a bachelor's degree. In the next hour, on Lower Income, Higher Ed, we're going to look at why so many poor students drop out of college. I was surprised to find only part of the reason has to do with money. Christopher is 19 now. He lives with his mother in subsidized housing in Washington, D.C. The complex has blocks of buildings with iron grills on the windows and shards of broken beer bottles near the entrance. A resident sees me and shouts out to no one in particular, someone's in the building, she's either a Jehovah's Witness or a social worker. Oh my God, it's been ages and ages. <laughs> How are you? Good. Christopher's put on a little weight since I last saw him, but otherwise he looks the same. His face is one big smile. He says high school feels like a lifetime ago. Christopher, do you remember the interview we did? Gosh, you were just a kid. I know. One thing I very distinctively remember about the interview is every time I answered the question, you would be like, okay, Christopher, that, that, that's nice, but let, let's be honest here. Let's tell the truth. 
To understand Christopher, you have to understand his relationship with his mother, Nikichi Feaster. He often calls them twins and is very protective of her. Nikichi was 19 and had just finished her freshman year of college when Christopher was born. I looked at him and I thought, oh my God, he looks just like me. Oh my God. Oh my God. She never went back for a second year. I didn't see a way for me to go back. Did not have a job, did not have anything. Nikichi has had a hard life. She was diagnosed with diabetes at 11 and has been physically and sexually abused. She's also struggled with depression and was laid off three times during the recession. When her rent went up by $80, she and Christopher ended up in the homeless shelter. But even while Nikichi struggled to provide for Christopher, she always insisted education was important. Homework was vital. I went to every parent-teacher conference. If school is open, you're going. So those last three days of school that were only half days, he was there. He was definitely there. She found a way for him to stay at the same elementary school even when they moved frequently and enrolled him in an after-school program in middle school. Christopher says she was single-minded in her focus. As far as I can remember, Chris, you are not allowed to put anything before school. Nothing. I don't care if you only have 45 seconds of school, you're going and you better come home and tell me something new that you learned. The basement apartment Nikichi and Christopher share is pretty stark. There's not much furniture and a large tablecloth covers the windows in the living room because the blinds are broken. But it's home. Nikichi has a steady job now as a receptionist and is leaving for work. You got your keys? I think so. See. Okay, keys. All right. Wait, you got your medicine? Of course. All right. Bye. Love you. Bye. Love you. Have a good day. Christopher still has one of the two large plastic containers that held all his stuff every time he and his mum were evicted. This is the box. I've got random crap I've thrown in here. He pulls out medals from competitions, cards from a high school counsellor reminding him he was capable of greatness and a dizzying number of certificates. A lot of awards. Recognition, participation, completion, achievement, outstanding performance, outstanding performance, high honour roll, high honour roll. It's a lot of high honour roll and outstanding performance in the set. I remember those days. And then, tucked away in a folder... What is this? Oh, wow. Forgot about this. Dear Mr. Feaster, congratulations and welcome. I am delighted to inform you of your admission to Michigan State University for fall semester 2012. That letter marked the end of Christopher's long and intimidating process of applying to college. Filling out all the forms required can be confusing for anyone but especially for low-income students who are often the first in their families to go to college. I spoke with Professor Carolyn Hoxby, who studies economics and education at Stanford University. I think there is a, a common mismatch between aspirations among American high school students and their knowledge of how to turn those aspirations into real, concrete plans. Hoxby says low-income students undermatch, meaning they don't even try for competitive colleges that meet their academic ability. Instead, they apply to less demanding schools where there are fewer supports and less financial aid. So it's not just the 
attend, don't attend decision that matters. It's really what sort of institution are you attending? That may seem like a subtle difference, but it makes a very big difference to college completion. College completion is now routinely measured in six years, not four. In fact, less than 40% of full-time students graduate college in four years. Only about 60% finish college in six. If you factor in students who started community colleges, those numbers are far lower. Why do you think we haven't concentrated on completion as much? I think that the single biggest reason was people just didn't notice that completion rates were so low. Hoxby says people believe college is transformative and opens up all these opportunities. I think all of those things can be true. But the transformation is created by going through college and learning the skills that are necessary. I I think our romantic idea was that simply showing up on campus was enough. In Christopher Feaster's case, the two major barriers to college, access and money, had been taken care of. He attended a public school called Hospitality High, which is designed to prepare (laughs) students for jobs in the hotel industry. (laughs) At the school... Michael Cachado and Tiffany Godbout Williams are looking at photographs of Christopher in old high school yearbooks. There he is getting an award, another one of his many awards. He's always a huge ham in these photos, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cachado was his teacher and is now executive director of Hospitality High. Godbout Williams held that position when Christopher studied here. Is that him? Yep. He looks like a baby. Mm -hmm. Oh, there he is. Oh, look, all dressed up. Mm -hmm. Only one in a suit and tie. (laughs) <laughs> what is he doing the hospitality there? Hospitality club. He was thinking everything. The school was an anchor in Christopher's unstable life. It has just 150 students, so Cachado and Godbout Williams knew him very well. They gave him a lot of basic supports, including uniforms, eyeglasses, and travel vouchers to and from school. And Christopher flourished. Teachers there helped students research different schools and apply for scholarships. They pushed students like Christopher to look beyond their present circumstances. And we don't set kids up to be successful if we continue to make excuses for them. A lot of what we did was be empathetic and loving and caring toward Christopher. But you know what? You've got to overcome this. He just loves the two of you. <laughs> we love him. He didn't, he didn't when he was in school, trust me. <laughs> All that structure and support paid off. In the spring of 2012, Christopher was accepted into the hospitality business program at Michigan State University. There he is, with you. They find a picture of Christopher in his black cap and gown and beam like proud parents. By graduation, he had received close to $200,000 in scholarships. The night of graduation, he got the final award. There was an angel scholarship that Michigan had secured for him. So it was anonymous for the last, what was it, like 18000 It was a lot of money. And the cheer, oh my God, his mother jumped up in the aisle. Oh my God! It was amazing. I mean, amazing. The, the thing that I think made me most happy and proud is he had lived up to his side of the agreement, did everything he needed to do, and our organization and our partnerships were able to eliminate that financial barrier. That was awesome. So it was like this perfect moment where everything came together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely a perfect mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. But that perfect moment passed quickly. After the break... We head to Michigan with Christopher to revisit his college life. 
I feel like as though I've let everyone down. Like it, it really weighs down on my spirit. That's just ahead on Breaking Ground. Lower income, higher ed. A special production of WAMU and PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Kavita Kadosa. We'll be right back. This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. Welcome back. From WAMU in Washington, D.C. and PRI, Public Radio International, this is Breaking Ground, a documentary series dedicated to unearthing stories you don't hear elsewhere. I'm Kavita Cardoza. Today we're talking about why so few low-income students complete college. Students like Christopher Feaster, a young man from Washington, D.C., who went off to the Midwest with a sense of promise in 2012. What went wrong? A few years later, Christopher and I go back to Michigan together to try and figure it out. It's a chilly morning at Michigan State, and the campus hasn't woken up yet. Christopher and I are walking along a trail that runs through MSU. Right here, you have Spartan Stadium. That's our football stadium. You know, Christopher, you remind me of the students who give campus visit tours Mm -hmm. to kind of recruit incoming freshmen. Mm -hmm. You sound like that. Yeah. Even now when I'm in D.C., if I see someone wearing MSU clothing, I will go, go green, and they will automatically just laugh and then respond, go white. (laughs) So which way do we have to go? That way. Oh, okay. This is so beautiful. Yeah, and that's one thing I also love about this campus. Even though there are a ton of buildings, there are a lot of pockets on campus where it's nothing but nature. You can get away and just... (sighs) Christopher grew up in one of the poorest parts of Washington, D.C. When he came to Michigan as a student, he took a lot of long, solitary walks to, as he calls it, distract his brain. Christopher was just 17 when he arrived here. It was the first time away from his mother and the first time he had a room to call his own. I was completely on cloud now. I was like, I have my own space, got my own space. But my first night, that was when the reality of the situation hit me. And I said, I am on my own. Whoa. It was as Christopher puts it, an insanely big change. I already went in with everyone having these, like, titanical expectations. And I'm just like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. That, that, that's a lot. I don't know. By his first week on campus, doubts had already started to creep in. And all the little differences Christopher noticed just magnified those fears. His high school was small. He knew everyone and all his classmates were minorities like him. But Michigan State has more than 38,000 undergraduates and almost three of every four students are white. He hadn't heard of brands other students talked about, like Banana Republic, and no one understood his D.C. slang. 
they have more of the Midwest suburb type of deal going on. And I'm vibrating on an urban frequency. I had to really watch my words. I'm used to when I want to talk to someone. <clears throat> it was that song. Yeah, I'm trying to head over to the spot lady. You trying to chill with me or what? Up in Michigan State, it's, hey, do you want to go to the movies later or no? Or what do you want to do? Christopher is excited to introduce me to his fraternity brothers, show me his former dorm room, and the dining hall where he used to eat most of his meals. It's the size of a large food court in a mall. There are seemingly endless varieties of pasta and pizza, sandwiches and sushi. The breakfast section has 16 different types of cereal. Lucky Charms, Golden Grahams, Honey Nut Cheerios, Apple Jacks, Frosted Flakes. What did you think when you saw all of it? I was like, wow, they don't even have it this good in the grocery store. The choices are overwhelming, a sharp contrast to the life he had left behind. His mother had moved out of the homeless shelter and into subsidized housing, but was still struggling. Honestly, when I was here, my main concern was, does mom have the money in order to pay the bills this month? Is she going to go without hot water? Is she going to get evicted? You know, that was my worry every day. Outside, we continue our walk. We're meeting up with two of Christopher's best friends from his time at MSU, Katie Beeler and Khalil Speller. Oh my God, I miss you so much. I miss you. <laughs> Khalil says they were the golden trio. I took it from Harry Potter because Harry, Ron, and Hermione are like the golden trio, and we kind of act like Harry, Ron, and Hermione at times. We okay? do, we do. I'll give it that. I will give it that. We not no type of Harry Potter. Both y'all nerds, you just stop. I've never heard of this golden trio crap. <laughs> Katie says it didn't take her long to figure out she was different from many of her classmates at MSU. It was actually the first week. Everyone was like, oh yeah, my parents went here. They're alumni. And then it gets around to me. I'm like, my parents didn't go to college. And then everyone just gave me this weird look like, oh my God, her parents didn't go to college. Basically, it all boils down to money. Because these kids were spending like outrageous amounts of money on clothes. I saw a girl oh. shopping online for shoes that were $245 for a pair of shoes. And there was another difference. All three were very good students in high school, yet they struggled academically when they got to MSU. Christopher had to take remedial math twice. What does this mean? Well, having to take remedial classes is especially difficult and discouraging for low-income students because those courses use up their loans and scholarship money, but they don't earn any college credit. I thought with the F I was spending, I was like, yeah, I probably got an A or B. I look at my class, C. What the hell? That was around the time where I then decided, F it all. So I just didn't want to go to class. I was not doing my homework, was not studying for tests or caring. Christopher became ill a few times and felt more and more overwhelmed. He spent a lot of time alone in his room. But when he came back home to D.C. for the Thanksgiving break, he told his mother everything was just fine, so she didn't question him. Christopher's high school principals, Michael Cachado and Tiffany Godbout-Williams, had kept in touch with him. They found out he was struggling. One day when Christopher was back in Michigan for the spring semester... I woke up because I had a phone call from Miss Hawks. That was Christopher's mentor at MSU. She was like, yeah, Mr. Cachado's here. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, Ms. Cachado, famous Tiffany from Hospitality High School. He's here. 
Huh? Christopher's high school principals had heard he was failing classes. They spent their own money to immediately get on a plane to Michigan, go to campus, and speak to him. His face was absolutely yeah. priceless. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> and the first thing that happened when the three of us went on, Mrs. C looked at me and said, Chris, what the hell is going on? And there are a lot of people in my life who I can look them in the eye and tell them I'm doing fine. I can never tell a lie to Mrs. C. I still consider him one of the biggest mentors of my life. He and Miss Tiffany had earned the right for me to tell them the truth because they have put so much faith and effort into me. They deserved an explanation. Christopher told them about his poor grades, how much he worried about his mother, and his fears of not belonging. I remember at the end of the conversation, we were all in tears. Mm -hmm. And we were like, this is what we need to do going forward. We can't change the past, but this is what we need to do going forward. They stayed for two days, met Christopher's professors, sat in on his classes, and set up a plan for him. All the structures they had used to help him be successful in high school. I walked away from that meeting thinking he's still going to make it. But Christopher slid even further into depression and stopped answering texts or phone calls. He felt he had disappointed everyone. By then, I had the mentality of, it was too late. You literally cannot bring yourself up to at least pass. So I gave up, and that trickled down for the rest of the year. Christopher failed all his final exams, and his GPA was 1.4. At the end of his freshman year, Christopher was told he would not be allowed back to Michigan State and returned home. Christopher had some support at Michigan State, including his advisor, Amy Radford Pop. Hi, how are you? How's it going? Everything is going well. Yeah, real good, real good. Christopher describes Radford Pop as a motherly guiding figure. She was in charge of more than 150 students at that time, but she remembers him. From day one, you were very charismatic, and you just struck me as someone that was very thankful for the opportunity to get an education. Oh, man. It, it feels good because I didn't think a lot of people would remember me. You have no idea how appreciative it is. Oh, man. You're welcome, honey. You're welcome. I'm proud of you. Thank you. They catch up and then Christopher leaves while I talk with Radford Pop alone. How common or uncommon is Christopher's experience in your 25 years of working with students? It's pretty common. It almost seems like these are kids who who know the least about what college means. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they put the most pressure on themselves. Absolutely. Since Christopher left, Radford Pop says MSU now has more support for students and what she calls intentional outreach. We've ramped up training and preparing the folks to deal with these types of issues that are not just academic, but some of the emotional things that are going on for students. Another thing that we now have is a success coach. Oh, it's an upper-class junior or senior level student role. You just check in, how's things going? You know, you never know. You never know who's going to have that impact. Christopher Feaster's visit back to Michigan State has been an emotional roller coaster ride. 
He and his friends Katie Beeler and Khalil Speller are singing and laughing, trying to make the most of Christopher's last day here before he flies back to DC. Hey guys, let's not get hit in the middle of the street now. Khalil and Katie have both struggled in college. Katie fell ill several times her first year. I think majority of it was stress. It was bad. <laughs> it was bad. Claude. Did you call home? I didn't want to worry anybody at home about my problems because I thought I could fix them on my own. It got me on academic probation, trying to fix them on my own. But what I had in my mind is that I can do it on my own because I've been doing it on my own forever. Katie withdrew from classes for one year and then came back. Despite their challenges, she and Khalil are very aware of the need to get a college degree. All of the things I want to do in life, I need this degree for. Can you even work at McDonald's now without a bachelor's? You need a degree for everything in America. It's crazy. I don't even a taxi driver need a degree. (laughs) I glance over at Christopher, but he's looking down and is silent. As we walk along, I hear Christopher and Katie talking about admission. One sec, one sec. So uh, the two of you looked up the admissions application last night? Yeah. I have decided that I'm going to stop procrastinating and I'm just going to reapply. Yay. They talk excitedly about how cool it will be if Christopher comes back to MSU. We reach Katie's dorm, and then it's photo time. Selfie! Right. Should yeah, the person with the longest arm hold the camera? <laughs> Where's the camera button? Right, found it. Then Christopher watches Katie and Khalil walk away. It's been a bittersweet visit for him, because when he's with them, he's reminded of what could have been. I'm trying really, really hard not to cry right now. I feel like as though I've let everyone down. Like, it it really weighs down on my spirit. If there's one thing I could do different about my time at Michigan State, I wouldn't let my doubts get to me. I know I want to come back. I'm just so worried that I can't do it. I'm so worried that I'm going to fail all over again. A little while later, Christopher and I fly back to Washington, D.C. It nagged at me that I still didn't completely understand why things went so far off track with him. So I went to see Monica Gray with the College Success Foundation. It's a national nonprofit that gives some of the poorest students scholarships and support as they get a degree. She's worked with hundreds of low-income first-generation students whose stories are similar to Christopher's. We keep our emergency supplies over here. And we have deodorant, toothpaste, and toothbrushes. Gray is opening drawers to show me what she calls the littlest things no one thinks about that can cause a student to leave campus. I mean, we've had students who haven't gone to school for a week because they didn't have money to do laundry and the student didn't want to come to school dirty. We have emergency sheets and towels and backpacks full of school supplies. Grace says many students she works with just don't understand all the aspects of college they have to consider. That costs are not just about tuition and housing, but also books and transportation. That often means that students don't buy their books and try to get by borrowing books. And sometimes that can mean that a student doesn't return for a second semester because they don't have the money to buy a bus ticket or a train ticket or a plane ticket to get back. Many of these students have helped support their families financially or cared for younger siblings. 
Sometimes that means these students feel survivor's guilt because while the outside world is celebrating their success, they feel like they're failing their own families. We know stories of kids who get rid of their meal plan so that they can send some funds back to their families and they're barely eating. Gray says there's also the culture of college, which many students don't realize is different from high school. For example, office hours. You know that the students who want to get the best grades in class are always at the professor's office hours. But from the high school model, particularly the sort of high school model that you know, a lot of our students come from, getting help from the teacher means that you're not doing well academically or that you're in trouble or it has a negative connotation. Studies show that low-income first-generation students often don't use all the resources colleges offer, unlike wealthier students who know how to advocate for themselves or have family members who step in. Gray says this difference is particularly stark when it comes to mental health services. It's not uncommon to have students who have had some trauma that they've not dealt with fall into a depression, stop attending classes. Gray says for students like Christopher, who have done all the right things, studied hard and overcome huge obstacles, it can be discouraging to see college classmates who seem so far ahead of them have so much more support or don't have to worry about money. And what's worse, says Gray, is when so many students have debt and are disillusioned, it can change a community's whole narrative about college. Every student that we serve has a story of a cousin, a sibling, a friend, a neighbor who went to college but had to drop out. And that is what a lot of people use as a reason for students not to try to go. If we don't find ways to be more effective in getting low-income first-generation students not only into college but through college, we are going to create a generation of low-income, first-generation college dropouts. After the break, we'll find out how Christopher is doing, and we'll hear how one university in Virginia is trying to keep students like him from falling through the cracks. It's real easy for first-year students to get overwhelmed and want to be invisible. That's just ahead on Breaking Ground, Lower Income, Higher Ed, a special production of WAMU and PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Kavitha Cardoza. We'll be right back. Welcome back from WAMU in Washington, D.C. and PRI, Public Radio International, this is Breaking Ground, a documentary series dedicated to unearthing stories you don't hear elsewhere. I'm Kavitha Cardoza. Today we're talking about the many low-income students who go off to college but don't complete their degrees, like Christopher Feaster, who left Michigan State after his freshman year. He's now back in Washington, D.C. Good afternoon. Thank you for calling the Tavern and Restaurant. This is Christopher. How may I be of service? Christopher has just started his shift as a host at one of the oldest hotels in Washington. We do not take reservations in our bar or lounge area, ma'am. It is first come, first serve only. No problem. Have a good one. Christopher's dressed formally, and as always, he's super polite. As he's working, his mother Nikichi stops in. I give you the standard talking that a son, an only child, should give his mother. Should, not should. <laughs> Their relationship, which was always so close, grew strained after Christopher came back to D.C. in 2013. 
For a long time, he wouldn't tell his mother why he wasn't going back to college. I was so angry because he was not talking to me. And again, walking around with I don't care attitude. Well, what is it you don't care? I don't even know what you don't care about. What is going on? Nikichi dropped out of college herself after she became pregnant with Christopher. So she was upset he had lost almost $200,000 in scholarship money. Why? 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 I could not understand it. All I could see is opportunity in the trash. She worries about how Christopher will survive in an economy where a degree is increasingly necessary. But for the most part, she keeps her fears to herself. Right now, what I'm looking for is, is he going to find a lesson from this? What is it going to be? What is the lesson? How could Christopher's time in college have turned out differently? These questions bothered me more and more as I spent time with him. So I went to talk to people who've been successful in helping low-income students get through college. My name is Deborah Beal. I'm the president and founder of the Posse Foundation. Beal worked in an after-school program in the New York public school system in the 1980s. There was a young person who had grown up in the Bronx, gone to a great school, had a big scholarship even, and he dropped out. Beale questioned him. And he's the one who said, I never would have dropped out of college if I had my posse with me. And we thought, great idea. Why not send a posse or a team of students together to college so they could back each other up? And that way, if you grew up in a big city and you ended up in, say, Middlebury, Vermont, or Greencastle, Indiana, you'd be a little less likely to turn around and come home. Today, the Posse Foundation selects 700 students from 10 cities and sends them in groups of 10 to colleges all over the country. Most are low-income, students of color, and the first to go to college in their families. The Posse Foundation says they have a 90% graduation rate. So why do the Posse kids succeed when so many others like them end up dropping out. Well, for starters, these students have lots and lots of support that begins a full year before they even go to college. Another slice of pizza? Thank you so much. I love Coke. In Washington, D.C., I have lunch with Diana Sanchez and Bernice Hodge. Pizza and Coke. Staples, they say, of their college diet. They're lovely, warm and opinionated. They're both posse scholars, back home in Washington, D.C. for the summer. But soon they'll go back to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, hoping to catch the Badgers' first game of the season. Oh I didn't know people get really get that hype about football games. Yeah. People were climbing trees. Yeah, I seen it. I was like, hold up. <laughs> Did you all care about sports before? No. That's the thing me. Diana's parents didn't finish elementary school. Bernice's parents made it through high school. And they were both surprised that the community on their college campus in Wisconsin wasn't as diverse as they were used to in D.C. Diana says there were lots of misconceptions. They just think that a lot of people here are kind of ghetto. And they're like, well, you guys walk really fast. <laughs> and do you guys like curse after every word that you say? And I was like, no, not really. I thought you were going to say bleep no. <laughs> but Diana learned that stereotypes work both ways. She heard people in Wisconsin were called cheeseheads. So before she left, she read up about the different types. I like was with a group of people and I was like, guys, let's, let's play this game where uh, we get in a circle and we just list the different cheeses. And I was like, only to do this to impress them. And they were like, I, I don't even know some types of cheese. And I was like, 
but I thought you, you're from Wisconsin. You should know. And they're like, what? Diana says posse support was critical in helping bridge the gap between high school and college. Career, academic, emotional, every aspect of life, they have like someone that you can talk to. And I just definitely did not expect that at all. Students receive full scholarships from the universities they attend, but beyond that, Posse spends approximately $5,000 on each student every year. A tenured faculty member meets with them every week for their first two years, and Posse staffers regularly visit students on campus. It's a highly structured program. Diana says they have to go to each of their individual professors and ask them to fill out mid-semester evaluations. It's something she wouldn't have done on her own. You kind of question yourself sometimes, like, these kids might be smarter than me. Like, I don't see anyone else scrunching up their face. So sometimes it's also sort of like a pride thing where it's like, I don't want the professor to think that I don't get it. Bernice had a 4.2 grade point average in high school, but found she had to work much harder in college. Professors would say, you know, how to critically analyze what we're talking about, but when it comes to writing, something is missing, you know? And I'm, I just remember thinking back to high school, like, why didn't anybody catch these mistakes, you know? Or why didn't anybody correct me before I got to college? Diana is nodding her head vigorously. She felt other students came to college with huge advantages. Honestly, I feel like they had, like, you know how, like, Dora the Explorer had that backpack and she could just take out things? I feel like they had, like, an imaginary backpack with, like, all these, like, resources. All this yeah, all this knowledge. Like, definitely, I've met a lot of people who've traveled. Like, I'm, I'm taking a political science to intro to Africa, and I only know the information that I'm learning in the class, but these people, they either had a specialized course in high school or they went to Zimbabwe. They noticed classmates could recite Shakespeare and had taken AP courses as early as ninth grade. Diana says one classmate had gone to the seventh best public high school in the country. I feel like a lot of people in Madison, you know, they're smart and they're very intelligent, but I, I feel like it has a lot to do with the education that they got mm -hmm. when they were younger. Right. Because, I mean, if your school is number seven, the best high school in the U.S., then... You could be bottom of your class and still, still, be, still be really good. <laughs> when first-generation students call home upset because, say, they failed a quiz, it's quite common for their parents to urge them to come back. That's how they feel they can protect their children. Sometimes it's the other way around. Diana had a difficult time last semester when her mother fell ill. My mom, like, she doesn't speak English. She has a lot of health issues. I would be the main translator to go with her to, like, the doctor's appointments. I remember one day, freshman year, she called me. And she left a voicemail. She, like, was crying, just like, I'm lost. I don't know where I am right now. Come home. I miss you. And it was one of those things where it was like, oh, God. That's where I really felt like I, I did abandon my mom. Posse stepped in and got permission for her to go home for a while. Staff spoke to Diana's professors so she could catch up with assignments, and they supported her through this entire period. Diana says that's the only reason she came back. They treat you as a human being. They don't treat you as, like, some prize or something that they invested money in. And you feel that, that warmness in your heart when somebody says, keep going, great work, you're going to succeed, you know, because not everybody gets that. I can't help thinking how Christopher's college experience might have been different if he had been a posse scholar. Christopher was a finalist, 
but because none of the colleges Posse DC partnered with offered a degree in hospitality business, he took his name out of the running. Posse is incredibly competitive. 1,600 students apply for 60 spots in Washington, D.C. alone. So what about all those students who aren't Posse scholars? In the U.S., nearly 40% of white young people have at least a bachelor's degree. African Americans are about half that rate. Hispanics are a third. But I came across a study by the Education Trust. They're a national nonprofit advocacy organization. Their report found Virginia Commonwealth University was among those that had significantly improved its graduation rates for minority students. We're at VCU in the heart of Richmond, the capital of Virginia, with a marriage of new world culture as well as great history. That's Luke Schulteis. He's in charge of student recruitment, retention, and graduation at VCU. A decade ago, VCU realized it had a serious problem. Only 40% of its students were graduating in six years. So graduation became a priority. Now 60% of its students graduate, one of the biggest increases in the country. And the gap between black and white students graduating has closed. Imagine taking a third of all of our students are first-generation students or students coming from a less privileged background. When they get a baccalaureate degree and are able to return to their communities, they're going to be able to bring benefits to their families and to their communities, improved health care, reduced crime, significant increase in lifetime earnings, children who will also go on to college. It just goes on and on. Daphne Rankin helps support students so they stay at VCU. She says part of the reason for the improved graduation rate is they changed the freshman experience. Now students have a core curriculum and are divided into small groups so they don't feel alone. Classes that would keep the same faculty member, the same 22 students together for the entire year. So in this large urban university of 32,000, we had a place where especially first-year students, could go and somebody knew their name. Schulteis says VCU identifies at-risk students who need what's called intrusive advising, where university staff reach out to them individually. That includes students who are in danger of being placed on academic warning, those who have withdrawn from a class because they were failing, those who wait too long to declare a major, and those who aren't taking the credits they need to graduate. So we're able to reach out to students to help steer them into the right path so that it's not too late and they leave the institution. While we need to figure out how to graduate students who get into college, we also need to figure out how to get more students ready for college. Daphne Rankin gets ready for a Skype conversation with DC Public Schools. The K-12 school system reached out to VCU educators for what's called a bridge conversation. Okay, I think we have this figured out. We can hear you. Yay. Rankin is in Virginia with her team. Hi guys, I'm Daphne Rankin. I'm the Associate Vice Provost for Strategic Enrollment Management. And the DC Public Schools team is on the other end. I am Erin Bebo. I am Deputy Chief of College and Career Education here at DCPS. DC Public Schools is overhauling how it prepares students for college. It's drawing on strategies that several school districts across the country use to varying degrees including having students visit colleges beginning in middle school and allowing them to take college courses in high school. But Bebo says there's another critical piece, 
following their graduates through college. We're setting up meetings with their leadership and we're saying, we want to see your data on how our students are doing. Where are they failing? And we are going to channel that back to the teacher level at the high schools to say, here's this disconnect. They look at historical trends of how many students attend Virginia Commonwealth and how they fare. Our students graduate at very high rates at VCU, and we would very much like to have more of our students going to VCU. They also graduate in fewer than six years. And that's especially critical for our students, whom overall tend to come from lower income backgrounds. Exactly. We do, we do have a campaign called Do the Math Campaign. And um, the idea is do the math, 15 credits every semester, and you'll be out in four years. That if you stretch it another year, you're going to spend about $25,000 for every year that you're not graduating. So we really want them to understand that the graduation plan is important. Mm-hmm. And it is... It's much more than monetary. We just know that students who take those 15 credits and who get out in four years tend to make better grades. Right. Rankin also tells them some professors at VCU take attendance for freshmen. If you're marked absent, you get an automatic email, like this one. Noticed you weren't in UNIV 111 today. Just want you to know that I missed you. Well, by the time he's missed two or three, those notes get a little more stern. You need to come see me right now. We need to talk about this. DCPS and VCU talk about signing a data sharing agreement so they can exchange even more information. Bibo says historically, the worlds of K-12 education and college have had little interaction. In recent years, I've started to see the walls crumbling, and that's a great thing. I think that as a school district, DCPS children are our children. Even after they graduate our schools, they're still ours. And then when they go to college, they're still ours. And then when they're successful in their college and career, they're still ours. But it looks like most of the reservations are coming between 6 and 8 o'clock like normal. There's a 20, 18, and a 15. It's been three years since Christopher Feaster dropped out of Michigan State. He now works as a host in a restaurant at a high-end resort called National Harbor in Maryland. He's previewing the next day's reservations before he clocks out for the night. Christopher last ate around noon, and he's tired, having just finished up a nine-hour shift. He's only working 20 hours a week, though, and once more. I don't have money in order to be able to hang out with my friends. As much money for transportation, as much money for clothes, for food, to have money, you know, just in case. It's a very big stressor for me. That's not the only thing upsetting Christopher. Since we last saw each other, he and his mother Nikichi were evicted again. She's now sharing an apartment with a roommate, and Christopher is renting a room in someone's house for $350 a month. There are three adults and four children sharing one bathroom. When his shift ends, Christopher has an hour-long bus ride back home. Is that the bus? That's the bus. Oh, my gosh. I don't want to miss it. I'm not going to miss it. It's 10.15 and we sprint, because if we miss this bus, it's a half-hour wait for the next one. But I am not a runner. We squeeze into the bus 
Everyone looks beaten down by the day. Christopher updates me on his readmission application to Michigan State. I did get accepted for readmission to the School of Hospitality Business. You that, did or didn't? I did. So if I choose to, I can go back as early as this fall. Oh my God, that's huge! I doubt I'll go back. Or I doubt I'll go back this soon. I must look crushed because Christopher explains it's not that simple. Of course it's not. This time there won't be $200,000 in scholarship money. I'm going to have to take out loans. I'm going to have to get a job. And having all of that while I'm in school, I don't think that's a good idea. Not for me right now. Oh, this is my spot. It's past 11 o'clock and Christopher steps off the bus. The street is brightly lit with the signs of fast food restaurants and payday lenders. I can just about make out Christopher getting smaller and smaller as the bus moves on. For years I thought that just getting students like Christopher into college would be enough, especially if there's a big scholarship involved as well. Now we know that it's not enough that getting admitted to college is only the start of a long uphill climb. In the US, even though we spend a great deal on higher education, the results are spotty. We rank just 19th out of 28 developed countries in our college graduation rate. Every person I spoke to for this story said the responsibility of getting kids to graduate rests on the college, the high school, and the student. But only Christopher is paying the price. All the educators I met seemed committed to helping low-income students, but high schools and colleges can afford to take the long view. Every year, after all, there's a new crop of students and a fresh chance to make the system work better. But every day, Christopher bears the consequences of having been underprepared for and overwhelmed by college back when he was just 17 years old. Christopher still hopes to return to school, but for now... It looks like a long way to the college degree he still dreams of. You've been listening to Breaking Ground, Lower Income, Higher Ed. Our producer is Kristen Sorensen, and our editors are Deborah George and Tara Boyle. Special thanks to Chris Chester, Karen Munson, and JJ Yaw, as well as the rest of the WAMU team. Thanks also to Noel Gunther, along with Kathy Merritt and the PRI team. Our theme music was composed by Greg Smith. For more of our reporting on college completion, visit our website, breakingground.wamu.org. You can also share your story on Twitter, at Kavita Cardoza. Thanks for listening. I'm Kavita Cardoza. This project is a part of American Graduate, Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.